Jeremiah chapter 47 The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the Philistines before Pharaoh struck down Gaza. Thus says the Lord, Behold, waters are rising out of the north and shall become an overflowing torrent. They shall overflow the land and all that fills it, the city and those who dwell in it. Men shall cry out, and every inhabitant of the land shall wail at the noise of the stamping of the hoofs of his stallions at the rushing of his chariots, at the rumbling of their wheels. The fathers look not back to their children, so feeble are their hands, because of the day that is coming to destroy all the Philistines, to cut off from Tyre and Sidon every helper that remains. For the Lord is destroying the Philistines, the remnant of the coastland of Kaphtor. Baldness has come upon Gaza, Ashkelon has perished. O remnant of their valley, how long will you gash yourselves? Ah, sword of the Lord! How long till you are quiet? Put yourself into your scabbard, rest and be still. How can it be quiet, when the Lord has given it a charge, against Ashkelon, and against the seashore he has appointed it? Jeremiah's oracles against the nations continue in chapter 47, with a prophecy against the Philistines. The Philistines, particularly in the years of the early kingdom, had been a powerful force within the land, representing an important enemy in the time of Saul and David. Before that time, they had struck a terrible blow against the Israelites in defeating them at the Battle of Aphek. That had led to the breakdown of the old tabernacle order. The judge Samson had also fought against them on several occasions. References to the Philistines go all the way back to the book of Genesis. Both Abraham and Isaac sojourned with the Philistines for a period of time, and then even before that, we have a reference to the Philistines in Genesis chapter 10, verses 13 to 14 in the Table of Nations. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrutim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. By this point in history, the Philistines were not big players in the region. They came under the power of the Egyptians and Babylonians. Like the Judahites during this period, they were caught in the middle of these great powers, and their fate was largely determined by the rising and falling of those great powers' prospects. They had formerly been important as an Egyptian satellite, and one of the powers through which the Egyptians maintained their dominance within the land. The location of this oracle immediately after that concerning the Egyptians, in chapter 46, is probably for this reason. The prophecies of this chapter concern the judgment and the destruction that's going to be brought upon Philistia from the north, from Babylon. However, the prophecy is dated from before Pharaoh struck down Gaza. Philistia is going to experience an attack from the north, from the Babylonians, and then an attack from the south, from the Egyptians. After this, there will come a further attack, and a more decisive attack from the north. The series of events referred to in this prophecy likely start with the attack of Nebuchadnezzar upon Ashkelon and Ekron in 604 BC. We might reasonably presume that Gaza was attacked at the same time. It seems most probable that the Egyptian attack that's mentioned in verse 1 occurred around 600 BC as the Egyptians sought to gain back control of this strategic coastal area. However, a few years later in 598 to 597 BC, the Babylonians attacked again and this time the Egyptians did not strike back. While the Egyptians had won a limited victory around 600 BC, it was not to last. In 2 Kings chapter 24 verse 7 we read, And the king of Egypt did not come again out of his land, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt, from the brook of Egypt to 
the river Euphrates. The prophecy compares the rise of Babylon to the rising of waters in the north that are going to come down and inundate the whole land of the Philistines. Like a flash flood, it's rapidly rising, it's going to come down quickly, it's going to overflow the whole land and wash them all away. The disaster coming from the north should remind us of the opening chapter. Then the Lord said to me, Out of the north disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. Neither the cities nor the countryside of the land are going to escape this judgment. The prophet paints a vivid picture of rapidly approaching chariots, stamping horses, dust rising behind them, and the thundering of wheels as the great army of the Babylonians approaches. Faced with this immense force, the Philistines prove powerless, their hands droop down, they do not even have the strength to go back and rescue their own children. The Babylonians coming upon them will be the end of Philistia as a nation. With the fall of Philistia, Tyre and Sidon will be left without supporters also. In verse 4, the Philistines are described as the remnant of the coastland of Kaftor. In the prophecy of Amos, chapter 9, verse 7, the Philistines are described as having been brought from the land of Kaftor. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Syrians from Kerr? The exact location of Kaftor is debated. It might be a reference to Crete. Verse 5 describes the situation of death. Baldness has come upon Gaza. Shaving the head was a pagan way of mourning the dead, as was the gashing of oneself described at the end of the verse. Ashkelon has also been destroyed. Historically, there were five important cities in the Philistine Pentapolis, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ekron, Gath and Ashdod. Gath was destroyed by the Assyrian Sargon II in 711 BC. Gaza wasn't completely destroyed by the Babylonians in 604 BC, as it was retaken by the Egyptians in 600 BC. However, we have references to the kings of Gaza and Ashkelon as captives in Babylon. The prophecy against the Philistines ends with an image of the sword of the Lord. The Lord is behind all of this judgment. The symbolism of the devouring sword is also found elsewhere in scripture. Within Jeremiah itself, we see such imagery again in chapter 50, verses 35 to 37. A sword against the Chaldeans, declares the Lord, and against the inhabitants of Babylon, and against her officials and her wise men. A sword against the diviners, that they may become fools. A sword against her warriors, that they may be destroyed. A sword against her horses, and against her chariots, and against all the foreign troops in her midst, that they may become women. A sword against all her treasures, that they may be plundered. The prophet personifies and speaks to the sword. How long until it will be quiet and return to its sheath? And then he answers his question in verse 7. It cannot be quiet, because the Lord has sent it out on its mission. The Lord has commissioned the sword against the land of the Philistines, and it will not be at rest until it has finished its task. A question to consider. The prophecy against the Philistines in this chapter is distinguished in part by the fact that there is no reason given for the judgment upon the Philistines. How might the people first hearing this prophecy have interpreted the sort of judgment that it involved? Romans chapter 2 Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. 
Do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also the Greek. But glory and honour and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew, and rely on the law, and boast in God, and know his will, and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonour God by breaking the law. For, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Verses 18 to 32 of Romans chapter 1 were a characteristically Jewish condemnation of paganism. We find such condemnation in various Jewish works, such as chapters 13 to 15 of the apocryphal Wisdom of Solomon. One could imagine many self-righteous persons nodding along with Paul's condemnation of idolatry and sexual immorality. Yet in chapter 2, Paul gives a diatribe against such imagined persons, persons who, accustomed to standing in the position of the judge, confident in their natural standing with God, have never found themselves in the dark. The person in verse 1 regards themselves as the exception, confident in their imagined right to judge and their immunity from judgment. However, whether pagan moralists or Jews presumptuously secure in their covenant status, they too are without excuse. They also sin in the same ways. The idea that there is a class of sinners that excludes us is unsustainable. 
we should recall Paul's description in verses 29 to 32 of the preceding chapter. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Such a condemnation flows very easily off the tongue of the judge. But if the judge were to step back and pay attention to what they were saying, they should observe that they themselves are guilty of various of the offences that they are condemning. When we adopt the position of the judge, we like to make excuses and allowances for our own sins, which we consider minor peccadilloes relative to the serious offences of others. While the person judging grants that the judgment of God rightly comes upon sinners, they use such judgment to present their superiority, without recognising that everyone comes under the general condemnation that Paul has just given. Texts such as the Wisdom of Solomon might exhibit a sort of Jewish exceptionalism, for instance, which simply does not reckon with the radical extent of sin and the fact that even observant Jews aren't exempt from its spread. The position of the observant Jew that Paul has in mind might be that, while the sins of the pagans are damnable, God is more indulgent with the sins of Israel. His kindness, forbearance and patience mean that Israel does not face the same harsh assessment. God views the sins of his people like an indulgent father. He lets things slide for Israel because they are his favourite people. However, God's kindness is designed to give us time for and encouragement to repentance and hope of forgiveness, not to give us confidence in our impenitence. Those who don't repent treat God's kindness and forbearance as excusing or minimising sin rather than as making repentance and forgiveness possible. Yet by using God's kindness to minimise their sin, they are merely compounding their initial sin with sustained impenitence and ingratitude to God's gracious extension of time and opportunity for repentance. This is all storing up further wrath for themselves on the day of wrath, when God's just judgment will be disclosed. On that day, God's judgment will be impartial, delivered according to people's works, no one will get special allowances or exemptions. Some persons will receive eternal life as they patiently persist in well-doing, seeking for glory, honour and immortality. Paul clearly believes that he is referring to a real, not a hypothetical group here. Some people genuinely will be justified on the last day when they are judged according to their works. Note that Paul doesn't say that such persons earn salvation. However, the judgment by which they are vindicated will be according to works. On the other hand, those who do not obey the truth and seek their own ways rather than God's will face divine wrath and terrible punishment. This judgment will begin with Jews, but will also come to non-Jews. God is impartial, and all who do good will receive glory, honour and peace. Again, there is no evidence that Paul regards this group as merely hypothetical, how that can be the case when all are sinful and naturally deserving of judgment hasn't yet been made clear, but will be in time. Neither possession nor non-possession of the law excuses someone from divine judgment. When Paul talks about the law, he isn't speaking of some abstract universal moral standard, but about the law given to Israel, the Torah, which set them apart as a people to the Lord. The assumption that mere possession of the Torah granted good standing with God is dangerously misguided. What matters is not the mere hearing of the Torah, but actual observance of it. Indeed, despite not possessing the law by birth, 
the words by nature in verse 14 should be related not to the doing of what the law requires, but to the non-possession of the law, when a Gentile fulfills the moral requirements of the law, they have the reality at which the law always aimed at in themselves. The work of the law is written on their hearts. Paul here may be alluding to passages like Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 31 to 34, which promised the writing of the law on the heart of once rebellious Israel, so that they would observe it from the heart. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbour and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Paul describes these Gentiles that show the work of the law written on their hearts as having some sort of awakened conscience, with their thoughts conflicting, sometimes accusing and sometimes excusing them. This active conscience bears witness to the law written on their heart, evidencing some internalised sense of God's claims upon their lives and the shape of a God-fearing life. All of this will be revealed on the last day when the secrets of men's hearts are disclosed and all face judgment. Paul describes this judgment as according to his gospel. We should notice how important Christ as future judge is in Pauline presentations of the gospel to Gentiles, perhaps especially something that we see in the book of Acts. Paul focuses upon the Jew who presumes upon his covenant status. This figure has been in view throughout, but now comes into direct focus. This Jew believes that he enjoys a special status. The judge at the beginning of the chapter believed that he was immune to the judgment. The Jew here exalts himself as a teacher, without taking into account the fact that this exposes him to a stricter judgment, especially when his teaching is hypocritical. Much of Jesus' teaching was directed against the hypocrisy of the religious teachers and authorities, who taught things that they did not themselves observe. The scriptures taught that, having been given the law, Israel was called to train their children up after them, that they were a light to the Gentiles, and that they had a special wisdom that would make them stand out among the nations. However, while reveling in the supposed superiority that this granted them, many Jewish teachers were laying heavy burdens upon others, while not truly observing the law themselves. The you here is not, I believe, a reference to the average, typical Jewish individual, so much as it is a reference to a hypothetical Jewish teacher that stands for the nation's teachers of the law more generally. While teaching against stealing, they devoured widows' houses and misappropriated funds given to God. While teaching that people must not commit adultery, they were known for their sexual infidelity and their compromising of marriage. While teaching against idols, they were quite prepared to bend the rules when there was a chance to profit from trafficking and things dedicated to idols. Paul's point is not that every Jewish teacher is guilty of these things, but that these wrongs are so commonplace among them as to be a source and cause of scandal and dishonour to God's name. The Gentiles blaspheme God on account of their actions. If Paul were making a similar point today, you could imagine him referencing things like child abuse. While only a small minority of priests and pastors may be guilty of this, this minority and the gross failure of wider church bodies to deal with them 
radically undermines the claims of those bodies to moral authority and a true teaching witness, and it brings the church in the name of God into disrepute in the society at large. God's concern for the holiness of his name and his people's profaning of it by their sin is a theme in the prophets. For instance, Ezekiel chapter 36 verses 20 to 23. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, in that people said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Paul concludes this chapter by dramatically relativizing circumcision. Circumcision is of value for those who obey the law, but of none to those who do not. On the other hand, the uncircumcised Gentile who keeps the law will be regarded as having covenant standing with God. The true Jew is not merely outwardly circumcised, but someone who is circumcised in heart by the Spirit. Paul is here alluding to Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Also referencing passages like Ezekiel 36 verses 26 to 27. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. These are blessings of the promised new covenant. The true Jew that Paul is speaking about here is not just the Christian believer in general, it's the Jewish believer in particular. The law and circumcision are indeed positive things, and have genuinely granted Jews a special status, as we will see as we go further on. However, they are only of value to true and faithful Jews. To other Jews who are unfaithful and unbelieving, they merely bring judgment. And Israel has been fairly consistently unfaithful throughout its history. A question to consider. What are some ways in which Paul's challenge here might be applied to Christians and the Church?